Welcome to the Marketplace Awakening Podcast. We hope to inspire you to live out your life as salt and light in the marketplace. Yeah, well, th- thank you so much for having me. Um, this is actually, I think, my my the first ever Thinking Faith uh, live speaking engagement that I'm doing. So I'm very uh, blessed and privileged to be here. Um, thinking Faith is a brand new uh, startup um, project based out of Singapore. It's me and three three others alongside me, uh, my friends and colleagues. And, and we are really just committed to coming alongside people of all faiths and all beliefs and backgrounds uh, and really speaking into the biggest questions of culture and the biggest questions that people have on their hearts and minds um, through the lens of the Christian message. Uh, so the big questions of life, God, purpose, meaning, we're, we're really about uh, digital content and live speaking and engaging with people uh, who are willing to have civil and gracious discussions and Q&As uh, about some of these big questions. And uh, we are Christian, um, and so we come at this uh, from a Christian perspective, but um, we are really keen on uh, just engaging with these questions and alongs- and coming alongside people of, uh, of all different worldviews and beliefs. Uh, I want to talk to you today about a topic titled The, the Myth of Self-Reliance or The Failure of Self-Reliance. There's an old movie, well, it's not that old, it's probably about six or seven years old now, called The Martian. Uh, it's got Matt Damon in it, and it, it tells the story of man's first mission to Mars. And the opening scene is of uh, the Martian space station and uh, an industrial accident that happens right during the opening credits. There's a big industrial accident. Uh, and one of the astronauts uh, seems to be killed uh, as a result of this accident. And the rest of them have to stage this very quick uh, evacuation of Mars. And so they jump in the space shuttle, they launch back to Earth, and then the camera cuts to the body of this astronaut, whom we think at that point is dead. It turns out, of course, that he's not dead. It's a character named Mike Watney, played by Matt Damon, is the lead character. And he wakes up, he was just knocked unconscious, and he is now in this ridiculous situation where he's literally stuck on Mars. And so he has to find a way to make contact with NASA headquarters or with the space shuttle. He has to find a way to regenerate his oxygen supply, to grow his own food, and to somehow survive and to get himself back to Earth. And so this movie is all about self-rescue. The final scene of the movie is Mike Watney, now back on Earth as an international celebrity and a professor at the NASA Academy. So I'm sorry if you haven't seen the movie. I spoiled it. He does make it back to Earth, which isn't really a big spoiler. You're not going to cast Matt Damon and then kill him in the first you know, 10 minutes of the movie. But he's giving a lecture to a bunch of NASA cadets. And he says to them, it's really important that you apply yourself, that you work hard, that you study hard, because you're going to get out there and you're going to come across a problem. And when you come across that problem, you're going to be required to solve it. And if you solve it, you'll be presented with another problem. And if you solve that, you'll be presented with another problem. And so on and so on. And if you solve enough problems, you get to come home. If you solve enough problems, you get to come home. Now, he's, of course, speaking in the context of the literal journey he was on being trapped on Mars. But it speaks to this issue and this mantra, if you like, that's all the more prevalent in modern society of self-reliance. And so I want to talk about three aspects of this. I want to talk about, firstly, the call to self-reliance. Secondly, the myth of self-reliance. 
And thirdly, how do we overcome self-reliance? A call to self-reliance, the myth of self-reliance, and how do we overcome self-reliance? So firstly, then the call to self-reliance, it's encapsulated perfectly in the movie, The Martian, and in that line by Matt Damon, solve enough problems and you get to come home. It's this idea that we are ultimately responsible for making something of ourselves, for dealing with the suffering, for dealing with the struggles, for achieving the glories and greatness and achievements in our lives. It all comes back to us. And this is what we drum into our children and into ourselves. It comes across in our music, in our movies, in our poetry, in the ideas that we continue to surround ourselves with. This idea that it's all up to you. You've just got to apply yourself. Frank Sinatra's song, right? I did it my way. But the record show, I took the blows, but did it my way. This millennial mantra that you see in hashtags and Twitter handles everywhere, you do you, your best self. And we have built a multi-billion dollar industry on the idea of self-reliance and self-help. In fact, the self-help and self-reliance industry is worth around 12 billion US dollars a year. This is an entire industry devoted to convincing people that the key to success, the key to fulfillment, the key to flourishing all rests inside them. And that it's all about lifting ourselves up, improving ourselves, developing ourselves so we can get that fulfillment and that flourishing that we want. The problem is, of course, it doesn't work as well as we would like it to work. It doesn't fit. And there's an author by the name of Anne Helen Peterson. Um, she's a New York Times columnist and has written a number of uh, very insightful essays and columns on this issue. The most famous one she wrote last year towards the beginning of lockdown called Millennial Burnout, and it went completely viral. And in this essay, she talks about how today, this generation of professionals, we have made ourselves machines of self-optimization. We are constantly looking for the next app or the next subscription or the next idea or the next book that will open up the capacity for us to self-rely and self-actualize. The, the psychologists and philosophers have called this self-actualization, this idea that if we just optimize ourselves and do our best, then everything will be okay. We'll be able to, to find ultimate fulfillment and flourishing. But she goes on in that essay to talk about how we, in doing so, in trying to self-optimize, we've overloaded on extracurricular activities. Now, here in Singapore, and I assume most of you on the call, if not all of us here, are in Singapore. Here in Singapore, we know this all too well, right? The, the overloading of extracurricular activities. Now, either you as children or you as parents right now were pumped full of the idea of extracurricular activities right from the start. Everyone is getting tutored. Everyone is learning a musical instrument. Everyone is involved in self-optimizing and kid-optimizing, family-optimizing, just constantly throwing things at ourselves and at our families that will make us better. Now, I've been in Asia a long time. I was born here, but I actually spent most of my life in Australia, and it's no different there either. You know, in the West, the idea of self-optimization is there too. It just takes different forms. There, it often happens in the context of sport and reputation and fame and network building, whereas in classical Asian thinking, it's much more about academics and building towards financial security. But whichever way you look at it, it's about self-reliance. It's about this call to self-actualization. Now, Helen Peterson at the end goes on in her article to basically conclude that we have done this. We are self-optimizing. We have overloaded on extracurricular activities and we are ticking all of the boxes of success. That's what life is about. 
ticking the boxes of success. You've got to get into the right school, into the right academic streams, to get into the right kind of high school or college or university, get the right marks there, to get the right kind of job, to live in the right kind of place, to meet the right kind of people. And we continue to tick these boxes of success. But then she says, but then the economy has blown up our dreams. And she's talking, I suspect, about the economic recession that came out of COVID when it initially struck. But she's basically saying, we did all of this work and all of this self-optimizing and all of this personal improvement and application, and then the economy just tanked and blew up all of our dreams. Now, this has resonances, I think, beyond COVID because it is generally getting more and more difficult to build and accumulate wealth to succeed. It's harder for young people to find jobs. It's more competitive in the labor market to, to move up in the workforce. And so it is getting harder and harder. It's getting harder and harder to self-actualize. And as we rely on ourselves more and more, there's more and more pressure that we put on ourselves to buy that next car, to upgrade to that next HDB or to upgrade to that condo or to then you know get the right investments in place, to get the stock portfolio right, to make sure our kids are in the right schools and make sure we have enough money to send them to the right universities. It's just a constant stream. There are Harvard researchers that have called it the hedonic treadmill, where you're just again and again ticking these boxes. And yet something as simple as a virus, something we can't even see can come along and the whole thing can be ground to a halt or turned on its head very, very quickly. So we see then that this call to self-reliance has turned into a bit of a myth of self-reliance. So we move on then from the call to self-reliance to the myth of self-reliance. The reason self-reliance doesn't work is twofold in my view. The first is external uncertainty and the second is internal ignorance. Now external uncertainty is pretty simple. It's, it's because of the uncertainty in the world that we see, the volatility, the lack of predictability in the world. There's a, a former sociologist called George Ritzer who talked about the four pillars of building modern society. And there are four things that we, we love here in Asia, especially here in Singapore. And the four things are these, efficiency, predictability, calculability, and control. Efficiency, predictability, calculability, and control. And he calls the combined sociological effect of these four things, McDonaldization. He talks about the McDonaldization of society, where you, you always know what you're going to get. You just turn up to the drive through window, you order the cheeseburger, it comes in exactly the same way all the time. We love the idea of control and building systems where it's predictable. We know what's going to happen. Even our algorithms now and the entire AI revolution is built on predictability and knowing the outcomes and wanting to control the outcomes. The problem is that the EPCC kind of McDonaldization paradigm is failing. Uh, and COVID is a very good example, but and obviously the most explicit one. But even before COVID and even after COVID, we don't really need uh, much imagination to think about the unpredictability of the world. We just don't know what's going to happen next, whether it's economically, politically, geopolitically, culturally, even in our own families. We don't know where a medical diagnosis can come out of nowhere, where a reckless driver can run a red light and you know change the, the life of our families or our friends just like that. We've all been through a lot of this through COVID, but the unpredictability that is intrinsic in our world is completely undeniable. And so to try and build models of fulfillment and success on self-reliance and predicting the world and trying to control what's going to happen is a bit of a waste of time. The, the economists and the leadership theorists are talking again about this world being a VUCA world, V-U-C-A, volatile, uncertain, 
complex and ambiguous. And this phrase VUCA is getting a lot more traction now in the business schools and in MBA curricula um, because of COVID. But when you look through history, it doesn't matter what year or era you choose. The world's always VUCA. It's always volatile and uncertain and complex and ambiguous. Uh, and looking back, we feel like we can predict what's going to come. But the problem with prediction is that it's all based on the past. All prediction is based on data and all data is based on the past. And so knowing what's going to come next, uh, we can make informed, educated extrapolations and predictions. But ultimately, we just don't know when a virus is going to come. We just don't know where and when and how a war is going to break out. We just don't know what's going to happen with demand in a particular uh, sector of the economy. We just don't know what's going to happen to a supply chain. We don't know when an airplane is going to fly into a building. And, you know, you guys at Standard Chartered, you and your banking colleagues from other banks know this all too well. The, the global internationalized banking sector has basically been in a, uh, a place of perpetual restructure for the last five to 10 years and is probably not going to stop for the next five to 25 years, given the amount of technological and digital disruption. So all of this uncertainty means that we are much, we, we are much better off trying to make sense of who we are in a VUCA world than in a McDonaldization type world, a world of intrinsic and ongoing uncertainty. So part of the reason that self-reliance is a myth is because we just don't know what's going to happen out there. The second reason is because we just don't know what's going on in here. So internal ignorance, introspective ignorance. And the reason that I say that is because all of the evidence shows that. All of the evidence shows that we have built for ourselves, humankind over many thousands of years, we have built for ourselves models of success, paradigms of success that are not really leading to flourishing in the way that we think they do, right? Now, let me give you a few stats to, to back up what I'm saying. Last year, the Singaporean government put out a youth council survey that said that in Singapore, one of the wealthiest cities on the planet uh, on any measure, offering one of the highest qualities of life on the planet on any measure, one in four Singaporean millennials suffers clinical symptoms of depression, one in four. And the suicide rate here, both reported and unreported when you combine them, are amongst the highest of any wealthy city or country, right? We also know statistically from OECD data that when GDP per capita rises, there is a correlated increase in the need for psychiatric treatment and psychiatrists. So the GDP per capita increases alongside an increase in the number of psychiatrists needed per square mile or per square kilometre. We also know from Harvard research that there is absolutely no statistical correlation between wealth and financial security and fulfilment. There is absolutely no statistical correlation. In fact, the correlation is there a little bit up until someone is earning around $100,000 a year, and after that, it completely disappears. So statistically speaking, there's absolutely no difference between someone earning $100,000 a year and someone earning $100 million a year. And yet we continue to build these paradigms of success and self-reliance, thinking that that's what will lead to the fulfillment and the flourishing that we're looking for. And it doesn't work. The data shows us that it doesn't work. So the call to self-reliance is very clear. All our movies, all our music, all our books are all pushing us to rely on ourselves and to just self-actualize. And yet the data shows that self-reliance is actually a myth. We don't fully understand ourselves. 
and we can't fully predict what's going to happen out there in the world. So how do we overcome all of this? How do we defeat this problem of self-reliance and the myth of trying to build our own success on ourselves? Now, for those of you who are Avengers fans, um, you'll remember the very first Avengers movie, there is a moment where Loki, and Loki is just a very confusing character. He's a, he's a good guy, bad guy, good guy, bad guy. He, it's hard to track. But in this first one, he's a bad guy. And he has come down to Earth, and he is holding a number of people hostage at gunpoint, a number of human beings hostage. And he says to them something along these lines. He says, the natural posture of humankind is submission and worship, and you will all worship me. And a man stands up in defiance from that crowd being held at gunpoint, and he says, we will never worship you. And then Loki says, there has never been a man like me before. And then the man who's standing up says, there are always men like you. Now, the most important part of that exchange is that in his defiance, that man who stood up to Loki, he doesn't reject or rebut or question the premise of Loki's first statement, where Loki says the natural posture of human beings is submission and worship. Because what he's basically saying is, yes, it is. In the man's actions, he's saying, yes, that is our natural posture, but we're never going to worship you. We're never going to submit to you. And there is a really powerful truth in that because what it shows is that we all worship something. All of us, before we seek to self-rely and self-actualize and make something of ourselves, first, we make something the object of our worship. We make something the object of our submission. Every single one of us worships something. We are all on this call submitted to something. And how it works is this for all of us. First, there is something we all worship and submit to. That thing then becomes the foundation of our identity. And it is that thing that we then work towards in the paradigm of self-reliance. It could be money and financial security. It could be fame and wealth uh, and reputation. Uh, it could be sex and beauty. It could be intellect uh, and kind of the reverence we might want from other people for being seen to be smart. It could be power and influence over other people. Whatever it is, we are all worshipping something. That thing becomes the foundation for our identity. And then that foundation is then the target and the focus of our self-reliance. So what do we need in order to get around that? Because the problem with those things of worship leading to identity, leading to self-reliance, is that it's never enough. It never works. No matter how hard we try, this idea that the world has given us, just look inside yourself. Everything you need is inside yourself, right? Whether it's how to win friends and influence people or eat, pray, love, or the present or the gift or anything, you know, that Oprah or any of these self-help minds have come up with. Not all of it is useless, don't get me wrong, but ultimately it all leaves us wanting more and it all leaves us insecure if we are relying on ourselves. And the late writer and philosopher David Foster Wallace put this beautifully in a really powerful speech that he gave at a, uh, an American university commencement address where he, he, he speaks to this issue that we all worship something and it always leaves us uh, inadequate and insecure. And he says, if the object of your worship uh, is financial success and security, if it's wealth, then it doesn't matter how much money you have, you will always need more. You will always need more and you will always struggle and you will always feel financially insecure 
If financial security is the thing you worship, you will always be financially insecure. If it's beauty, physical attractiveness, and sex that is the thing that you worship, then you will spend your whole life trying to make yourself more attractive and trying to seek after the physical pleasures right, of sexual engagement. But it doesn't matter how much of that you get, you will always feel insecure, ugly, and inadequate on some level. And even if you can artificially engineer for yourself some kind of physical attractiveness in the short term, as age takes its toll, and this is a powerful line from um, Foster Wallace, he says, as age takes, it to- takes its toll and your looks fade and your you know, sexual capital fades, you will die a million deaths before they finally put you in the ground. Then he goes to talk about, goes on, so he talks about money, he talks about sex and physical attractiveness. Then he goes on um, and he talks about power. He says, if power is the thing that you worship, that you build your identity on, then you will just spend your whole life trying to get power over people. You'll be disconnected. Your relationships will be affected. You will never engage with people as equals and you will end up feeling out of control and you'll end up feeling inadequate, like you always want more power. And then finally, he says, For some of us, it's intellect. It's wanting to be seen as being smart. It's wanting to be seen as being intelligent. And if that's the thing that you worship, then you're always going to feel intellectually inferior because there's always going to be someone smarter than you. And you're always going to feel like a fraud, always just about to be found out because you're not quite as smart as everyone thought you were or as you have been putting yourself out to be. So he just gives these four examples of how if we don't get right the object of our worship, then we won't have right the foundation of our identity. And then our whole project of self-reliance will just come crumbling down. And sadly, when we look around the world, and when I look at many aspects of my own life, both historically and even right now, I see tendencies where he's absolutely right, where this myth of self-reliance just comes crashing down. So how do we overcome it? How do we defeat this failed idea that all we need is to dig deep inside ourselves and make ourselves and our lives better? Well, we need to attack and address the three things that caused the problem in the first place. First of all, we need an object of worship that is outside of the chaos, outside of the booker, outside of the uncertainty, outside of ourselves. We need something to worship that's outside this system out there. Secondly, through that, we need a foundation for our identity that gives us a purpose outside of this system. And thirdly, we need help. We need someone or something else to rely on. So it's not all up to us. This huge burden that we've got that everyone is trying to bear of having the whole world on our shoulders, our whole task of making success for ourselves on our shoulders, like like Atlas, the Greek god, who's literally got the weight of the world on his shoulders. That's how so many of us are walking around right now. So we need an object of worship that transcends our world and the uncertainty in it. We need a foundation for our identity and a purpose that transcends the world and all of the chaos in it. And finally, we need help that comes from somewhere outside of ourselves. Interestingly, then, when you look at the Christian message, I don't have time to go through all of the other worldviews, but when you look at the Christian message, the Christian message offers answers to all of these three things, but it doesn't offer it propositionally. It doesn't offer it through a self-help book or a 10-step process to being a better you or a philosophical system or even a system of of rules and rituals. It offers the answer to all three of these needs in a person. It offers the answer to all three of these things in a person. God himself coming into the world as a person. Now, that's fascinating. It's deeply countercultural. You won't find it in any other worldview. And to the 
questions that we need answered, the need for a transcendent object of worship, the need for a transcendent basis for our, our identity, and the need for a transcendent source of help, the Christian message points not to theories or rules or systems or philosophies. It points to the person of Jesus, God himself coming into the world as a person and now inviting each of us into a relationship with him through which we get all three things. So Jesus famously, in the context of needing something to worship that transcends the world, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying I'm, it's God himself as a person. There's the reliable and worthy object of worship something that can bear the burden and carry the load of our identity and what we need, right? In the context of needing a foundation for our identity and a deeper purpose, Jesus says, I've come so you can have two really important things that you can't flourish without, loving relationship with God and loving relationship with other people. And they're both inextricably interconnected. And interestingly, this plays into the secular research on this. The greatest, the, long, the biggest longitudinal study on human fulfillment happened at Harvard University. And they said that the one thing that is a key correlator for fulfillment and flourishing are relationships. It's not wealth, it's not sex, it's not fame, it's not celebrity, it's not beauty, it's not any of those things. It's relationships. Interesting then that Jesus would ground the entire Christian identity on two categories of relationship, relationship with God and relationship with one another. So he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm worthy of worship and submission. But more practically, I'm going to offer you right relationship in two contexts, right relationship with God and right relationship with one another too. And thirdly and finally, on the idea of help and the need to transcend the burden of being only able to rely on ourselves, what the Christian message says, Jesus literally out of the Bible, these words, all those who are weary and heavy laden, Come to me and I will, give you I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is powerhouse. You don't find that in any other worldview. Every other worldview will say, do this and you will be able to overcome the obstacles. Do this and you will be okay. Do this and you will actualize. You will be successful. Only the Christian message says, don't try and do anything in your own strength. It's not going to work. You're exhausted. You are sick and tired of being sick and tired. I know, trust me, I made you is what God says. I know how it feels. You are weary. You are heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you rest. I won't give you theories. I won't give you philosophies. I won't give you a self-help seminar. I will give you rest. And it's something that God does for us through the person of Jesus. All we have to do is say yes to that relationship and step into that. You know, it's interesting that in The Martian, it's a, obviously a fictional story, right? It's Hollywood writing and it's good Hollywood writing. It's a great movie. They are trying to weave the idea of self-reliance through this movie. That movie is all about the beauty of human engineering and science and innovation and the human spirit of resilience and perseverance and how he gets back to earth. And all of that is true. It's all wonderful. The funny thing is, though, even in fiction, he doesn't actually get back on his own. How does he get back? He has to be rescued. They have to go back and get him. It's a rescue. Even with all of the self-actualization, even with, you know, the rock-hard abs and biceps and chiseled jaw of Matt Damon, you know, using science and engineering and growing his food and regenerating his oxygen, all of these fancy things, two and a half hours later, how does he get out of it? He has to be rescued. It's ultimately a rescue. Even in fiction, we can't write ourselves into the flourishing and safety and refuge that we need without rescue. 
it's intrinsic, even in our imagination, that ultimately we need rescue. Self-reliance doesn't work. We need to be rescued. We need transcendent rescue. And through the Christian message, we have that. So I don't know where any of you are, you know, in your walk with God, in your wrestle with God, in your contemplation of God, maybe some of you in your rejection of God. Uh, but I just, I just want to encourage you today that if you are relying on yourself and you are tired, if you are sick of trying to predict what's going to happen and control it, uh, if you have been told that everything that you need to be successful is inside of yourself, uh, I just really want you to encourage you to release and relieve yourself from that uh, and to take a look at the person of Jesus. Take a look at one of the first four, bio, one of the first four books uh, of the second part of the Bible, which we call the New Testament. One of the first four, book, the first four books of that part of the Bible are, are the biographies of Jesus. Pick up one of them and check it out and see what this message has to say. Thanks so much uh, for listening. Um, we've got a bit of time now, I think, for, for Q&A. I'm not sure how you want to moderate this, uh, Jess, but back to you. So what you say, Max, really resonates with us as Singaporeans. Uh, our government is very big on meritocracy. So this, this, this is very much ingrained in us, even as we grow up as Singaporean children. So yeah. I really, I really, you know, it really resonates with me how much we keep striving to um, reach certain goals. You know, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, yes, you're a baby, you work to a goal of being able to walk, being able to swim, being able to run. And then when you reach a certain goal, you move on to the next goal. And we are so goal-oriented. Yeah, and it really forms the way we, we live and we work these days, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I think the idea of meritocracy um, is one of the biggest challenges, is actually understanding meritocracy well. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, like I said, I'm an Australian, and Australia, like Singapore, presents itself and, and works hard at trying to build a society that is meritocratic, um, where if, if you work hard, you do scale. But, you know, I, I worked in politics for about eight years, and so I, I, I've seen the intricacies of public policy and how they can impact um, on people's lives and, and how social and economic mobility actually work. And I think the first thing I would say is absolutely, we should be trying to build meritocracies. We should be trying to build societies where when people work hard, they advance and there is reward for hard work and application and dedication. Um, and I think cities like Singapore are doing it as well as anyone. But in the midst of all of that, we have to also be real, I think, with ourselves that when you look at the evidence and the data, there are no pure meritocracies. There simply aren't. Um, I, you know, when I go to a hawker center and I see some of these uncles and aunties in their 80s, some of them in their 90s that are scrubbing tables, um, it's very obvious to me that they are working as hard as I am. They apply themselves as much as I do. Um, and you know, I've, I've spoken in C-suites, I've spoken at CEO forums, I've spoken to you know, very successful and educated people like yourselves. Uh, I'm sure you, you all work equally as hard as them too. But let's not pretend that if we all work equally hard, we'll all end up in the same place socioeconomically. Um, there are some people for whom uh, it actually makes absolutely no difference how hard they work. Uh, they will never break out of where they are. So having a realistic understanding of that, it's not that how hard we work doesn't matter at all. But uh, I think the myth of meritocracy, that might be another talk to give one day. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's really important that we're not in control. Hi, Max. By resting in God, how do we do that when we have so many to-dos on our daily list? As you have shared, one problem solved, another comes up, and it's never-ending. Yeah, this, this question probably resonated with every single person uh, on the call. 
um, you're absolutely spot on. It's it's not an easy thing. The, the world is busy. I'm not going to pretend that we don't all have a million things to do. I'm sure while I was speaking, most of you at some point were thinking about what was next for you, what you had to get done before you, you know, closed your outlook down for the day or whatever. So I, I totally hear you. Your, your insight is um, resonant and entirely accurate. Um, I think resting in God is an interesting thing. We, we think sometimes that rest is a verb and verbs are things that you do. And so it's easy, to, it's easy I think, to, to think that, oh, my goodness, I have so much to do and now I've got to rest as well. And it's almost like another thing that you have to fit in. Uh, you have to make time to rest, which is just exhausting. Um, and I'm, I'm not a time management expert, um, but the Christian message has a very interesting response to this problem. It's almost like it knew that we would be living in a world of smartphones and a million apps and a million uh, applications that we need to communicate on because the Christian message is anchored ontologically. And it's the only one in all of human history that's anchored ontologically. Every other, and I'll explain what that means in a second. Every other worldview is grounded in what you do or think or feel or say. And what you do and think and feel and say all takes time. It's all doing. They're all verbs, right? But the Christian message is anchored in who you are. It's ontological. Ontology is just the science of being. And so when a Christian wakes up in the morning, the most important thing about them is who they are. They are a son or a daughter of the living God. They are in up close and personal relationship with God. They are a citizen of his kingdom. They are a soldier in his army. They are a member of his family. And that is the most important thing about a Christian, regardless of what happens that day, regardless of what they do and think and feel and say. Now, having that ontological grounding doesn't automatically make all of the to-do lists go away. But what it does is it puts them all in perspective. And if we can go into a day knowing that the most important thing about us and the most wonderful thing about us and the greatest assurance and security that we have, not just about today or tomorrow or the rest of our lives, but eternal life is already taken care of, then suddenly all of these other things, they're still important and they can still be stressful, don't get me wrong, but they suddenly can be put into perspective a little bit better. They can be put into perspective and they can be dealt with with an element of freedom. There can be a freedom in doing so many things because we know that our identity doesn't hinge on it. If we fail at one of those things on the to-do list, it doesn't matter to our identity. If we don't do one so well, uh, it doesn't bring our whole world crashing down. Whereas if we throw God out of the picture and we build our identity around our to-do lists, then if something goes wrong, then we're screwed, right? Then we're, it's all over. Our identity comes crashing down. Whereas if you're a Christian and you lose your job, all you've lost is your job. Whereas before I was a Christian, if I lost my job, I would have lost my whole identity. I would have lost my whole life. But because we're ontologically grounded, that is the rest that the Bible talks about. Resting in God comes from knowing who we are not from what we do. And the beauty of that is we don't need to do anything to have that assurance of who we are in God. Uh, that's why it's the ontological grounding, I think, is very key. But it's a great, um, it's a great question. Thanks, Mickey. I hope that helps. I think we've got another one here. Okay, let me just read this one out. If our work environment is not going in our favour and it affects us internally and takes a toll on our mental well-being. What can we do? Look, this is a really, a really good practical question. Uh, I think some of my answer uh, to Mickey's question hopefully will speak to that in some degree. 
Um, but mental well-being, the use of that phrase is quite significant because mental ill health is like any other kind of ill health. Mental ill health just can affect us in a very clinical, physical, and biochemical way. Uh, so, you know, if you've got a broken leg, you've got a broken leg. Uh, and being a Christian doesn't immune you from broken legs, uh, nor does it immune you um, or prevent you or make you invincible to, to mental ill health. So my, my first bit of advice, my first thing I would say is that I'm not a mental health professional. Uh, I'm not accredited at all. But uh, I think you should seek, I, I would advise people, you know, to actually seek professional uh, diagnosis and professional help. So there is, an, there is a degree to which mental ill health should be treated clinically by, by professionals. And, and that's why we have professionals. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't break your arm in the morning and then just go to work and try and deal with it. So you'd go to a hospital, you'd get casted up. So if you've got, if you are suffering from mental ill health or just anxiety or any kind of issues like that, please reach out for help. Reach out to your friends, reach out to your colleagues, uh, reach out to a professional. I think that is the most important thing. In the context of work environment not going in favour, one thing that the Christian message doesn't do is promise an absence of suffering. In fact, the Bible actually promises a double portion of suffering if you're a Christian. Uh, so it says the world is messed up and we are messed up. There is going to be suffering. There is going to be suffering. The solution that the Christian message offers, though, is that you don't have to walk through that suffering alone. The person of Jesus Christ actually, at one point in human history, came and took on suffering onto himself. So this God that we worship is not a God of advice and not a God of consultation and not a God of self-help. He's a God of suffering. He actually stepped into the suffering himself, literally, and took it all on himself. And so now what he says is, take my hand, we're going to get through this suffering together. There's a beautiful passage in a book called Romans in the Bible. It's a letter that one of the early Christian thinkers wrote to the church in Rome. Uh, and it says, we are more than conquerors through Jesus. Now, if he's calling us conquerors, there's got to be something to conquer. Right? You're not a conqueror unless there's some kind of adversity or suffering. Otherwise, he'd say, we are more than comfortable through relationship with Jesus. He doesn't say that. He says, you're more than conquerors, which means there are going to be struggles. There's going to be struggle at work. There's going to be uncertainty. There are going to be people you disagree with. The question is not so much, how do you avoid that? You can't avoid that. The world is messed up. Marilyn Robinson, great. Um, I think she was a Pulitzer Prize winner. She wrote, there are two realities we can't escape my insufficiency to the world and the world's insufficiency to me. So it doesn't matter what we do. To some degree, we are going to be always a bit messed up. And to some degree, the world around us is going to be messed up. The question is, how do we navigate it? What kind of people are we going to be in dealing with the struggles and the suffering? And when you're in a relationship with Jesus, he offers us a sense of grace and peace and patience and assurance and comfort and strength. In my experience, there are two things we're all looking for when things are difficult. One is comfort and strength in the middle of it to go through it. And the second is hope of something better beyond it. The message of Jesus offers exactly those two things. Comfort and strength from God and from other followers of Jesus in the middle of suffering and hope of a better future, ultimately an eternal future, where there'll be no more suffering at all. So I hope that's kind of a bit more encouraging. Just having a Thanks. look at it. Thank you for that. I think there was another question around striking a balance. So the question comes through as, is that meant to be a balance between reliance on self versus reliance on God? Or is it binary? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm so glad you gave me the opportunity to clarify that. 
I think they're in different categories. I think they're categorically different. Uh, you know, for the Christian, for me, and when you look at the Christian message, we are called to rely entirely on God for our identity, for our purpose, and for our object of worship. So God is responsible ultimately for all of those things, and we are called to fully give ourselves over to that, which takes a huge load off, takes a huge load off. Now, we no longer have to worry about being enough or impressing people or standing out or succeeding, you know, for the purpose of our identity and our esteem. But then what that frees us to do is to do what God has called us to do as best we can. There's a verse in the Bible that says, whatever you do, do it as if you're doing it for God. So we are responsible for the calling God gives us, but we don't have the burden of our performance in that calling, you know, being the only thing that drives our identity and how we feel about ourselves and our, our sense of who we are. So it's not a question of balancing. It should be entire reliance on God. And then through that reliance on God, we get freed and we get liberated from the stress of self-reliance. And then we can go in freedom and joy and excitement and do the best we can at the things God's given us to do. Um, and we will succeed sometimes, and that really won't matter that much because we have a, a bigger identity and a bigger future. And we will fail sometimes, and that really won't matter that much either because we have a bigger identity and, our, and a bigger future. And it's okay for success to make us happy and failure to make us unhappy, but our identity won't be tied up with that. So ultimately, reliance, I think, always should be for the Christian entirely on God. But then we have a responsibility within that paradigm of reliance to go out and do what God has called us to do, knowing that he's always with us while we're doing that. That's why Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he's not saying there's nothing for you to do. That's why the whole idea of going and just living out in the forest, in the jungle, that kind of Benedictine thing, um, you have to be very careful with it. He doesn't say your yoke will be gone and your burden will be non-existent. You will still have responsibilities. We still have families. We still have a job. We, we still live in a free market society where you need money to pay for goods and services. So it's not like our responsibilities completely disappear. But Jesus says, I'm with you in that. And when you're with me, doing it alongside me, it's going to be so much easier because you won't have the stress and the pressure and the burden that comes from that. How do you encourage a Christian sure. in sales job who is pious and relying on God, but diligent, but keeps facing setbacks and can't make ends meet? Very, very practical and very personal. I mean, thank you for the honesty in sharing the question. I think, first of all, it's important to do what I've alluded to already in, in the previous answers I've given, is to be clear that your performance in your job and your performance financially has nothing to do with who you are, nothing to do with your identity. I mean, the Judeo-Christian you know, paradigm of human anthropology is that everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone is made in the image of God. It's the only worldview that says that. Everyone is made in the image of God. So there's nothing meritocratic about what makes you special, about what makes you unique, about what makes you loved, about what makes you known. Uh, in fact, one of those beautiful verses in the, in the Bible is that you are God's handiwork. You know, and the, the better translation for that is actually that you are his masterpiece. Um, and you are his masterpiece, even if your sales targets are absolutely rubbish. Um, you're still his masterpiece. I, I don't want to speak out of turn because I, I don't work where you guys work. Um, and I've never worked in sales. And I know how much pressure that can bring. Um, but I think, again, if, if your identity is anchored in something beyond, 
The second thing I would encourage you to do is to just take a bit of a step back economically and just look at the world and the reality of the economy right now. Um, there's just demand dips across pretty much every sector, you know, in the economy. And so I think people in sales need to give themselves a break uh, in terms of their performance. Um, I don't know necessarily that it means you should use this time to reflect on whether you should move out of sales or whether you should be looking, you know, to, to do something different if, if the stress is too much. Or, and, and that all will depend on your personal circumstances, your personal situation, uh, what you expect in terms of, you know, a reviving of, you know, demand, you know, in your sector and what you're selling to and so forth. But I think, I think that's why it's important for all of us to be plugged in, not just to what the Bible says, but also what's happening in the world. Um, we don't want to just have our heads in the sand. We don't want to become bubble Christians. I know we are always at risk of that, of, you know, reading the Bible and not reading anything else. I think that's deeply problematic too. So, you know, I think if you're struggling with your performance, you know, get some advice, maybe talk to someone who's close to you, talk to a colleague, talk to your boss if you trust them uh, and try and work through that very practically and pragmatically about, you know, what's viable economically in the current climate, whether there are other hindrances in your job that you might be struggling with uh, and various other personal factors that I would have no idea about, you know, everything okay in your relationships, everything okay at home, are you sleeping okay, are you physically okay? Um, all of those things could be could be relevant too. So sorry, there are kind of generic answers to a very specific question, but um, I think in the middle of it all, if you remember that you are God's masterpiece, I think that helps. That'll stop you beating yourself up as you're dealing with the with what I have no doubt is a very difficult time um, for people in sales and for people everywhere. Indeed, indeed, Max. Thank you so much for your words of encouragement. And whilst we don't know the actual story behind these uh, points, I think Think that it's important to recognize that well we we are the children of God and that that should be what we should hold fast to. I'm just really excited uh, that I get to be with you guys um, for four weeks in a row. So four four talks in four weeks, four of these sessions, four Q and A's, all back to back. So um, you know the, the the group that puts these together is just such a um, a wonderful and, and dedicated um, small group of people just doing what they can to to bring some variety and thought leadership um, and you know some entertainment you know to a otherwise I'm sure difficult working day for, for many of you um, and so today we talked about the myth of self-reliance next week I'm going to be sharing on goodness or greatness you know which one's more important and what's the difference uh, after that free thinking freedom and flourishing so I really look forward to that. And then finally, formation, identity, and purpose. Uh, and that formation, identity, and purpose session, um, I'll be touching a little bit on some of the stuff um, I did today, but really thinking a bit more practically, and particularly, I think, for the person that asked, asked uh, about the sales difficulties questions, how some of the things I've been talking about actually play out practically in going forward and how that plays into who we are and what we do and, and how we can tackle um, the rest of 2021.